Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. There's lots to talk about today. We've got really incredible guests, so let's just get right to it. Later, we will celebrate Asian Heritage Month in Canada with the editors of a new collection of Asian writing. It's called Belief, and it's from the editors of Rice Paper Magazine. We'll get to that in just a little while. Then, the social host, Cynthia Loist, stops by to talk about her book, Find Your Pleasure, The Art of Living a More Joyful Life. We'll talk about how to take the guilt out of pleasure and get to the heart of what you need and want in all aspects of your life. But first, we have a fascinating story. This is a real-life story that has all the hallmarks of tabloid fiction. New Yorker magazine staff writer Patrick Radden Keefe received international acclaim for his 2019 investigation of the Troubles in Ireland, and now, in Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, he turns his sights to three generations of the Sackler family, the dynasty behind Purdue Pharma and the modern opioid crisis. Here's Patrick Radden Keefe on Zoom from his home in New York City. For people who don't recognize the Sackler name, just give us Cole's notes, a a brief about what we need to know about the family before we get into some of the nitty gritty here. Sure, of course. Well, for for decades, the Sackler family was chiefly known for being a great philanthropic dynasty, one of the wealthiest families in the world, uh, with really with two branches, one in the United States, mostly in the kind of New York and Connecticut area, and then another one uh, in the UK, based primarily in London. And they have over over the decades given hundreds of millions of dollars to the arts and the sciences and put their names on buildings. And so if you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, you'll see the Sackler Wing. And there are Sackler Wings and galleries and buildings at the Guggenheim and the Louvre in Paris uh, and the British Museum and Harvard University and on and on. And it was really only in fairly recent times, just in the last few years, that that people started to ask questions about where this great fortune came from. And the answer turns out to be uh, that most of the fortune comes from the sale of OxyContin, a very powerful narcotic painkiller that helped give rise to the opioid epidemic. Now, the narrative in the book is very intricate. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of people Um, How do you decide on what details are important when you have such a wide-ranging story, uh, what characters to keep in, what characters to keep out? It's journalism, so you can't do what we would do in narrative fiction, which is do composite characters and that sort of thing. How do you trim this down so the book isn't 15,000 pages long? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, I I think about this all the time because I do a fairly research intensive uh, form of journalism. So for this book, I interviewed more than 200 people. I reviewed tens of thousands of pages of court documents and other private materials that had uh, come from from the family and the company. Um, but I'm, you know, it's always important for me to remember as a writer that you don't get any credit just for doing your homework, right? That um, <laughs> it's not enough to come back to the reader and say, and you know, push this pile of research across the table and say, look what I did. Um, you know, I want to tell a good story. I, I want this. I think this is a, a ripping yarn, and I want people to engage with it in that way. So for me, that that means a process of distillation of figuring out. Who are the significant characters here? Who do we need to know about? Who can we who can we leave out, or who can we meet just in a in passing in a little vignette? 
uh, and then move on. And, and, you know, because you have a family, what that meant for me was I, I made some preliminary decisions where I said, I'm going to look at three generations of the family. Um, I'm mostly interested in people who were involved in the family business. And so there are these three original Sackler brothers. And then when it gets to their, you know, their wives and their ex-wives, there are some interesting relationships there, their children. Then I start really focusing more on the children who were involved in the business in some way. And similarly, in the third generation, I probably spend more time writing about the one third generation Sackler who's, who's involved in the business than I do some of the other ones who aren't. And this book would have taken years to research. Uh, when you're planning, we'll get to some of the real nitty gritty here in a sec, but when you're planning a book like this, when you first come across the idea and then you think, okay, this would make a, a, a great uh, book, but you have to decide, do I want to spend three years of my life or more with these people and them taking up the, the psychic space in my head? Is that a consideration for you or is it always just, this is an amazing story, I'm going to find a way to tell it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the question for me is there's a there's a um, there's a level of intimacy that I want to be able to achieve in a book like this. And so the real question for me was, this is a family that is not cooperating with me. They're not going to talk to me now. They will never talk to me. Um, so is there a way for me to write the book where the reader won't feel like, uh, you know, they're seeing these people through a telescope? Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the threshold question for me. And it became, it, there was a point where I realized a lot of people who knew the family were getting in touch with me because I'd written this piece about them in the New Yorker. A lot of uh, documents were coming out in litigation. So I was actually able to tell the story in the words of the family themselves. And, you know, with quotes from them, emails from them, letters that they've written. Um, and at that point, I thought, okay, there's there's a way to do this where, you know, it's not just that it's, a, I think, an important story and a great story, but also one where you'll get a sense that you're, you know, that you're in the boardroom, that you're actually in the family homes, uh, that you're witnessing these conversations up close and not, um, you know, seeing them from some great remove. You're listening to my interview with Patrick Radden Keefe, author of Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. And I guess that's the difference between writing narrative nonfiction versus writing history. It's it's they 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 overlap a little bit on the Venn diagram, I guess. But but the narrative nonfiction to me feels more intimate, more uh, dramatic, more uh, entertaining. I guess maybe from the writer's point of view. I think I think that's right. I, I would certainly say so. I mean, and for me, there's you know what that means. Part of this is I come out of a, a tradition of magazine writing in the New Yorker, so you know I want to be able to to paint scenes. I want you to feel like you're there. I want you to to feel like you can see things and hear things and and be witnessing it. Um, it you know, ideally for me, it should read like a novel. There's a hundred pages of endnotes, so you can see it's all it's all reported out. You know, if you're if you're curious to go to the back, you can check my homework. But while you're reading it, I hope that it just it kind of goes down fairly easy. And I think, you know, another thing I would say along those lines that I think about a lot is that um, I didn't want to write a book for specialists. Right. Um, you know, the, the book ends up being about the opioid crisis. But in some ways, I think there are probably readers who may have no particular desire to pick up a book about the opioid crisis who nevertheless will... Um, learn about this family and become absorbed in the story and get sort of pulled in by the, just the undertow of, of the narrative and these interesting characters. So we're talking about a company called Purdue, 
here, which is the, the, the Sackler family umbrella company. And tell me a little bit then about the marketing campaign that Purdue launched around the time that they were uh, getting ready to release this, this miraculous painkiller that was going to revolutionize the world. But they launched it to change the attitude of doctors and the public. It was a very targeted, uh, very pointed campaign because the idea that you can have an, opi- an opioid painkiller that isn't addictive is fiction. It just, it just simply isn't possible. So tell me a little bit about Purdue's uh, campaign to make sure that people felt as though what they were taking was safe and without side effects. Sure, of course. So, so Purdue had had an earlier drug that was a big success called MS Contin, which was a morphine pill. And morphine is an opioid. It's derived from the opium poppy. And so it's potentially addictive. MS Contin was used really primarily for people who uh, were suffering from cancer pain or sort of end of life uh, in an end of life uh, care situation. And it was a very successful drug, but that's a small market. So they had this new opioid, OxyContin, which is uh, oxycodone is another opioid, which is the, the drug in that. And they wanted to launch that, but to appeal not just to people suffering from cancer, but to a much broader universe of people. So not just people with severe pain, but actually people with moderate pain as well. And the company estimated that that market could be as many as 40 to 50 million people in the United States alone. Uh, You know, they also pushed this drug in Canada and ultimately many other places around the world. And... The issue that they had was that there was a perception among physicians at the time, a very long-standing perception, that opioids are quite addictive. And so while they can be miraculous in terms of pain relief, you also need to be careful about prescribing them because people can get hooked pretty easily. And that was a, a kind of a barrier for the company, they realized. And so what they did was they set out to persuade the medical establishment that these fears about the addictive properties of opioids were overblown. And they had a huge army of sales representatives. They got a bunch of medical literature, some of it pretty dubious, but, you know, it kind of looked official. Um, And they went out and they had a variety of claims, which are, you know, entirely untrue. One of them, for instance, was that uh, if, if you're being prescribed opioids in a doctor's care, that they're addictive less than 1% of the time. That was the thing they would tell thousands of doctors, less than 1% of the time, less than 1% of the time. I interviewed all these former sales reps who said we would just all day, it was like a mantra, less than 1% of the time is it addictive. And they went out and they sold and sold and sold and they miraculously were, were able to really kind of changed the mind of the medical establishment. It wasn't just them. There were other people arguing for this point of view, but there were also, you know, they had a speaker's bureau with thousands of physicians who would go out and make this case, but were also getting paid by the company, remember? And so you had all these different conflicts of interest that I think were kind of leveraged to change the paradigm of pain treatment. And that ended up being very successful. How is it not illegal to pay doctors to say, this is fine, 1% of the time, all these things provably false. How is that not illegal? Well, it turns out it was illegal. I mean, (laughs) and and in 2007, uh, the company ended up pleading guilty to felony charges of misbranding OxyContin. And in fact, the company more recently pled guilty again to new felony charges uh, of fraud again, um, just recently, just a few months ago in late 2020. So, so there are many illegal things that the company has, has done over the years. There was uh, if there was a line, they crossed it. 
one of the things that they said was that the only problem was that recreational drug users were not taking oxycontin uh, as directed. And so that, uh, again, a great falsehood, I would think. Uh, but how long after the release of the drug were there signs that people were abusing it? So th this is a, a fascinating uh, timeline that you're you're getting at, and I, I stumbled on this in my reporting for the book for a long time, um, and and right up until just 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 recently, the argument that Purdue Pharma and also the Sacklers have made they've they've always told a very consistent story, which is that they really knew nothing about how big the problem was with OxyContin until early two thousand. So remember, the drug gets released in early 96. Mm -hmm. so four years, they claim, went by before they had any real indications of a serious problem. What I was able to substantiate in the book with a, a really extensive paper trail is that that's not true. That's a lie. And, and a couple of senior executives testified under oath in Congress to that. Richard Sackler, one of the Sackler members, testified in a sworn deposition. We didn't know anything until early 2000. And I found lots and lots and lots of internal company documents and emails suggesting that they knew going back really as far as 97, so just about a year after the drug was released. And then it, the pace picks up, 98, 99. By 99, they're, they're looking very closely at lots of references on the internet to how people are abusing the drug and, and, uh, you know, and getting hooked on it. Well, they talked about individual responsibility, right? If, if you get hooked on this, it's because you didn't use it the way we were suggesting it, which I suppose might be persuasive in, in some ways, except that the drug is incredibly addictive. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, so there's a couple of um, things I would say to that. The, the first is that um, I think in a strange way, there is a kind of profound uh libertarian strain of, of U.S. philosophy that you see in action here. I, I analogize it to the gun business, right? So it's like if you're a firearms manufacturer, uh, if you make an if you make the uh, an you know an assault rifle and the assault rifle is used in one mass shooting after another, um, what the, what the gun manufacturers say and always have said in this country is guns don't kill people, people kill people. We have no responsibility whatsoever for this killing machine that we put out there into commerce. Um, it, it is all about the individual responsibility of the in this case the mass shooters. Um, it's very similar here, right? Where they're saying we make a pill. Uh, and it's not our responsibility what people do with it. Um, the, the trouble right from the beginning has been that they always wanted to have a kind of um, distinction between drug abusers on the one hand, these kind of reckless people who would be abusing any drug, it's not has nothing to do with the drug, and then legitimate pain patients who are prescribed the drug for pain. And they always argued those people, the legitimate pain patients never get addicted. There's a, um, and they actually argue that even up to this day, the Sacklers maintain that. There's an astonishing statistic I found that's in the book. There was a filing uh, in a bankruptcy case just recently by one of the big insurers in the US, by United Health, where they said they had done a study of people who have health insurance with their company who were prescribed OxyContin and then subsequently uh, diagnosed with an opioid use disorder. And they said that the number of hits that they found for people who, who on, in that overlap on the Venn diagram was in the hundreds of thousands. 
So those are people who are prescribed it by a doctor and then subsequently not just become addicted, but actually are diagnosed with an opioid abuse disorder. So the notion that, um, you know, that, that the, the patients don't become accidentally addicted, I think is very, very hard to square with the facts. You're listening to my interview with Patrick Radden Keefe, author of Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, available now wherever you buy fine books. The Sacklers are a colorful family to put it uh, mildly. I think there's, uh, you know, personal lives that, that can only be described as Baroque. There's bitter disputes over estates. There's all that kind of stuff. When you were putting together a book like this, which you know is going to be uh, gone over line by line by the Sackler family lawyers after all this is over and by your own publishers, lawyers too, I'm sure, uh, before it uh, comes out. Um, how do you separate fact from fiction and how do you corroborate these stories? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, yeah, look, I this this book had to be lawyered within an inch of its life. I'm, I'm a lawyer myself by training. Um, the Sacklers have been threatening to sue me since before I started writing the book. So um, I'm very, very attuned to uh, to these types of considerations. Um, yeah, I, I, look, th there's an aspect of the of the book that is quite dishy and gets into the personal lives of some of these people, and 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 I I embrace that. I mean, I think it's a a sweeping family history, and um, I certainly wouldn't want to shortchange the reader uh, on that basis. Having said that, this is part of the reason that my book is so scrupulously endnoted is that some of the really colorful moments. Um, you know these these moments about infidelity or or uh, you know attempted suicide, um, uh, big quarrels and rifts within the family and so forth. Um, if they seem uh, a, a little scandalous, um, I think all the more reason why you know I would encourage readers to check the back and see where everything comes from because everything is punctiliously sourced. Um, and has been gone over very, very carefully. I should also say I gave the Sackler family did not cooperate with mm -hmm. the book. I did go to them with a really extensive list of queries about the family and the company. I mean, there's over a hundred queries in total. Um, very, very specific, kind of minutely detailed questions. And they so they had those and were kind of on notice about what was going to be on the book and ended up kind of blowing the process off. They chose not to engage uh, and and either confirm or deny. When you say that the Sackler family has been threatening to sue you even before you started writing the book, I guess after the piece in the New Yorker came out, uh, does that hang over your head in some kind of personal way? Does it does it lead to stress, or is it just part of the gig of being an investigative journalist? I think it's mostly part of the gig. I mean, in this case, it was more of an irritant than anything else. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you, at times, I it was encouraging because I felt as though um, they really, really don't want me to write this book. They don't want the world to know this story. Uh, I must be onto something here because they're spending a great deal of time and energy and money trying to shut me down. Uh, but honestly, all it did was was kind of redouble my, um, my conviction that it was an important book to write and that I needed to do it in a way that was... Um, you know, was responsible and, and bulletproof. Um, and, and that is what I, what I feel as though I did. So yeah, it, it's, it's part of the game. I, I take it in stride. Um, but I stand by the book. I, I'm proud of it. And, uh, and I wouldn't change a word. They have one of the world's great fortunes. Do you think though, that the legacy will be one of greed and indifference to human suffering or is that overstating it? Uh, no, I don't think it's overstating it at all. Um, I think, um, 
you know, there's a, there's a moment that this is one of these things that in a, if I were writing a novel, I, I, I probably couldn't even use such a thing because it would seem too on the nose. But there's this amazing moment that I stumbled on in my research about Isaac Sackler, who was the original, the father of the original three Sackler brothers. In the Great Depression, he loses his shirt and he's he's got nothing to give to his sons and he gathers them around and he says, listen, you know, I'm, I'm not able to give you any money to finance your education, but the one thing I'm giving you is a good name. And, and the good name is the most important thing. And he tells them, you know, if you lose a fortune, you can always earn another one. But if you lose your good name, you can never get it back. And so I, th I think we end up now, uh, you know, nearly a century later in this in this kind of amazing juncture in which the family will ultimately probably keep most of its fortune that it derived from from, you know, from opioids, from uh, from the sale of OxyContin. Uh, but I think we'll lose its good name and, and we'll probably never get it back. That was my interview with Patrick Radden Keefe. Find his fascinating book, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, wherever you buy fine books. We all know Cynthia Loist as one of the hosts of the CTV talk show, The Social. But did you know she's also an expert in how to find pleasure in your life? She is the creator of Find Your Pleasure, an online hub to help readers find pleasure in their lives. And she recently authored a book, a roadmap on happy living called Find Your Pleasure. The book shines a light on the importance of guilt-free pleasure, the mental health benefits, the pleasure gap between men and women, how to prioritize pleasure while parenting, and the inclusivity of pleasure and how to find it in a resourceful way. In this interview, the self-described professional sensualist will talk about how she is quietly suffered through what looks like a perfect life, what it means to be a professional sensualist, and the keys to pleasure. Here's pleasure seeker Cynthia Loist. So how do you describe pleasure? I mean, for me, pleasure is the everyday indulgences that we maybe take for granted. Mm -hmm. It's also um, an idea around sensuality. I see pleasure as um, living through our senses. It's about what we see, what we taste, what we touch, what we feel, and what we hear. Um, but to me, it's interesting because I think pleasure has been kind of maligned in our culture. Well, you know? I think that we are embarrassed to admit sometimes that we do something strictly for the pleasure of it. It's not getting us ahead in our jobs. It's not furthering our education it's just something that feels good so we do it and then we use these terms like guilty pleasures mm -hmm. or forbidden pleasures and to me one of the things that i started thinking about was for the longest time it feels like we've been having this focus on happiness right. everywhere you turn it was like 10 easy ways to find happiness yeah. all these happiness books happiness researchers and a lot of times in that conversation Pleasure gets maligned as like the self-indulgent or dirty little cousin of happiness. It's like the lesser version mm -hmm. of. And I think part of the reason why that is is because um, it comes from a sort of puritanical background. The fact that pleasure, if you do a quick search on Google, usually you'll turn up some things about <laughs> sex. Right. It's a quick association, or it's these kind of forbidden pleasures, or this idea that when you indulge in pleasures, it's a bit of a slippery slope to ruin. You're drinking too much, you're doing whatever it is, it's all about excess. That's right, and the fears around that. Mm -hmm. and, and this is not to say that I don't believe that there are certain pains in life masquerading as pleasures, right. but what I was surprised to realize, and I think people might be surprised to realize, is there's actually a lot of health benefits baked into pleasure. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one of them is there's evidence to suggest that people who are in hospital and recovering will recover faster if they have a beautiful view out their window. Right. Another one that I found really interesting, and this is being increasingly used in addiction uh, 
help with addictions is that when you are actually making art and the creation of art, it activates the same pleasure centers in your brain in a natural way. So that's why it's being increasingly used in addiction recovery. And of course, uh, I do talk about sexuality because that is a part of pleasure and peak pleasure, which is like the big O. (laughs) There are all kinds of health benefits to do with that. There's evidence to suggest that it reduces stress and helps with sleep. So these are just a few examples that I found when I was researching the book that I thought, these are interesting things that we don't talk enough about and we need to. Okay, we're going to talk more about pleasure and the book in a second, but you were raised in a very religious household where the idea of pleasure was kind of frowned upon in some ways. It wasn't all doom and gloom in the house, but tell me a little bit about your relationship with pleasure and how you came to it growing up in a household where, like we just said, too much is too much and it's bad for you and why are you doing this? Yeah, I think I raised, I think this is probably a similar experience to anyone who was raised in a religious background. Mine was Catholic Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of like, don't do this, don't think about this, don't talk about this, don't eat that. Um, And for me, what it did, it it ended up making me very um, doubtful of my own uh, passions and my own desires. I also had a lot of shame um, particularly when it came to my burgeoning sexuality as I was going into my late teens. And I think um, for women, this is a particular story that a lot of people can relate to. We get told a lot of times these fears. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, eat that extra cookie, better watch out, you might gain weight. Right. Or if you talk too much or too loudly, watch out, you might become bossy. Or if you talk about what you want in bed, watch out, you're going to be seen as slutty. And I think these are just some of the many ways in which we detach people from their inner desires and from speaking them. And it's the ways in which we teach women to also put themselves very far on the back burner in life. And I don't want that anymore. Well, you don't want that anymore, (laughs) but there was a period at which uh, that was kind of happening for you. And and this whole pleasure principle, the thing that led to Find Your Pleasure, your new book, uh, was a realization that it's okay. It's okay to like things. Because you haven't always. No. I I, I share the story in the book that it was, you know, right as soon as we launched The Social, Mm -hmm. it was a few months in, and I had this great job and this great partner. Everything is going well. Uh, On paper, your life looked amazing. And inside, I was kind of quietly suffering. I felt like I was mired in to-do lists and, like, stress, and um, I felt like I was failing as a mother. I had a lot of mother guilt. And when I started, it it all came to a head one day, and basically I, I left the show weeping. And I didn't share this with anyone, but it dawned on me that I couldn't remember the last time I'd done something just for me. Something self-indulgent that I put myself way far on the back burner. And when I started asking around to my friends, all of them were saying that they were in the exact same position. And this was when it was kind of that light bulb moment. And I thought, there's a conversation to be had here. And it started my deep dive on pleasure, which eventually led to my website Mm -hmm. and then now this book. Which really, the book I'm describing as sort of a cookbook with recipes for life. You're listening to my interview with Cynthia Loist, author of Find Your Pleasure. Well, you quietly suffered through a great deal of that. Do you think that you know, most people, many people that we see that have the smile plastered on their faces and that kind of thing, uh, they just haven't figured out how to enjoy the simple stuff? It I, took me a long time to come around to the idea that simple pleasures are okay, and it wasn't until after I had cancer and I realized that there was a, 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 such a huge life-changing thing like that, and I've said this over and over again, the worst thing that ever happened to me turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me because it made me stop 
and, and look around and understand that simple pleasures are the way to go. It made me understand what's important. I don't recommend it as a pathway to finding pleasure, but uh, for me, it is the thing that worked. I think that makes so much sense, and I actually think we would be wise to all think a lot more about death mm -hmm. in order to really fully enjoy life. Uh, and I think the biggest problem that we get into is that we end up sleepwalking through our lives. Yep. Our faces are buried in our phones. We get caught up in other people's narratives about what success looks like and what we should be doing with our free time. So that's, again, another reason why I think people should think deeply about what it is that brings them, that stirs them, that motivates them. And it's those, those are the bigger kind of like ideas around pleasure. But then it's those little tiny things that every day that we kind of end up not really noticing. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's really easy when you are, have children around you. doesn't mean you have to be a parent. But watching kids maneuver through life, they are little pleasure monkeys, right? Plorking. Plorking. Right? Let's talk about plorking. Well, yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it is. This is something that comes from, you know, watching a, a kid play with Lego. Yeah. And, and then applying the same level of joy that he or she has playing with Lego right. to your work life, yes. right? Yeah, so, so uh, play work. Plorking is an idea that uh, a woman named Sister Corita Kent came up with in the 60s. And she was this like artistic nun and um, really creative soul. And this idea of, of that every time you approach work, it should be with a sense of fun and mm -hmm. play. And that's really the antithesis of what we normally think of as the corporate world. You're supposed to be serious and you're supposed to be, you know, in work the, for a reason. That's right. Yeah. And I think if we think about it a little bit more playfully or in injecting a little bit of play into our day, it changes the way that we have our, our everyday life. And um, it's funny, just back to the kids thing, there's a line in the movie Knocked Up that Paul Rudd's character says, and he says, I, I wish I enjoyed anything as much as my kids enjoy bubbles. <laughs> and I remember hearing that line just thinking, like, that is so true. It's a reminder of how crappy at life we get as adults because we're so serious and we're so focused on making money and, you know, you know being, being something as opposed to just actually being in our bodies and enjoying it. Well, how did you learn to plork then? Because <laughs> you have a very public job, mm -hmm. five days a week, on television. Uh, whatever comes to your mind can be transmitted to a whole lot of people. Yeah. And I would imagine that there's a certain caution that comes with that. I would imagine that there's a mindfulness that comes with that. Yeah. Uh, but still... On this journey to find your pleasures, uh, I think it probably, all, a lot of it starts at work. You have to figure out this massive chunk of your day and yeah. how to make it work for you. Well, I had to stop doing the exact same thing the exact same way mm -hmm. every single day. So I think many people do this. You wake up, you check your Instagram or you check your whatever, put it down, you make your coffee. You, do, you take the same route to work every day. You do the same eating patterns, like all these things. So what I've tried to do is change up things and make my own life unexpected. That was Find Your Pleasure author Cynthia Loist. Watch her Monday through Friday on the social and pick up her book wherever you buy fine books. Rice Paper are a Vancouver-based magazine that's been covering and promoting Asian writing, arts, and culture since 1994. Rice Paper's new anthology, Belief, is in stores right now and features work from over 20 writers. This anthology is a compilation of Rice Paper magazine submissions, short stories, poetry, and nonfiction by writers of Asian descent from across the world. The theme, which binds each piece, is belief, a notion personal to each individual sharing a piece of themselves in their works. Alan Cho and J.F. Garrard, the editors of Belief, uh, join me now. I have to say, like, from the Asian community, we are... I guess stereotypically a rather quiet bunch. So, you know, um, 
having a platform such as rice paper to give them a voice is really nice. And um, half the writers in this book are very experienced, like Joy Kogawa. I mean, she has the Order of Canada. I think she's already reached the, you know, her peak. And then you have new writers who have the first time they've ever been published and they're just so thrilled to uh, be in a book. And um, it was just a wonderful opportunity to bring these stories together. So, Alan, it- tell me about the, the kinds of stories that are in there. Mm-hmm. In- They're really stories about uh, the Asian ex- uh, diaspora experience. So we're careful not to just have Canadian writers. We wanted to have one that really showcases the experience of the Asian diaspora. Just being uh, Asian king doesn't necessarily mean that you're born and bred in Canada. So you're informed by experiences, you know, um, friendships, relationships. It's a really global experience. Um, and uh, what, one of the what story, uh, poems that we were really happy to have was the late Jim Wong Chu, because he had a, a number of poems that are still uh, unpublished, and uh, he was working on them. So we were, we were able to have uh, uh, um, of Christmases. It's a poetry poem of um, experience of early railroad workers in Canada, you know, in snow and, you know, the first experiences in, in the cold winter of Canada. And what, what does it mean for somebody that doesn't know uh, the Canadian winter well? And, and what is Christmas? What were the experiences? So he was sort of reimagined what a railroad worker experienced during uh, that, the holiday of Christmas. So that's one sort of uh, story um, that we want to showcase. But really, we're also going back to the roots of rice paper, which is really giving a lot of writers the chance that uh, they can get published. We're careful to have uh, established and and emerging writers. Jay, talk a little bit, if you can, about how rice paper encourages writers who may have been turned away by other publications that didn't understand or or appreciate writing that has uh, themes that deal with uh, the author's Asian Canadian identity and heritage. Well, I have to admit, like as a writer myself, I find some of the, my stories that sell the best are the ones where I unfortunately take out all the Asian characteristics because I think a lot of um, publications, publishing is a business, right? So you want to publish something that's tried and true. And a lot of times it's whatever the latest thing was. Mm -hmm. So when they pick a a next piece to publish, a lot of publishers will just pick something similar to what they published before. So when you send in something that's a little bit niche that might, you know, someone from an Asian background might mention something, it could be something small, like maybe the person has an accent or they're eating certain types of food, then the publisher might worry, you know what, I don't know if my general audience will understand what faux is or whatnot. And it's easier to turn down someone because writing in a way there's no barrier to entry. So when you have a thousand submissions, you know, like why should we pick this one? That's really hard to market. And um, I don't blame them. Like it's a business. It's a rolling the dice game a lot of times with a lot of publishers. So they won't take a risk. So in publishing diverse books in a way it's a risk because they're not sure if anyone's going to buy it is Mm -hmm. it going to connect with the people right like who are the people buying their books their demographics and um at the end of the day it's a business decision and unfortunately a lot of times that's why it's been so hard to get diversity out into the marketplace because no one's sure if the gamble will pay off right well alan the existence of rice paper and now belief uh perhaps suggests that there is a market for uh, Asian writing that transcends one particular marketplace. Mm-hmm. That's 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 the goal. Uh, we're l- looking at a, a flourishing of writing. Hopefully, this is a, an anthology that would do that. In many ways, we're qu- kind of going back in time and 
in the in the early 1990s, uh, Rice Paper had uh, helped uh, publish an anthology back then called Many Mild Birds. And that was a very seminal work because those short stories, a lot of them went on to become uh, bestsellers. Um, I'll give you an example, uh, Wayson Choi's Jade Peony was a short story in that anthology. And it was something that uh, the editor of that uh, anthology, Jim Wong Chu, did exactly what we we're doing. He was kind of going, picking and selecting works that, uh, that he felt that would have a chance for uh, publishers to be excited about. And that was one of those stories that, uh, that uh, eventually uh, went on to um, get uh, 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 interest from Douglas McIntyre. Uh, who asked for that book to, to uh, that short story to become a book? So Wayson worked on it for a few years, and it did become a book. We're looking for that exact moment right now as well, where we're kind of getting the publishers excited about the short story that hopefully can turn into uh, a novel or a poem that can turn into a book of poetry. So yeah, we're kind of turning back the clock and hoping that we can do that again. And I think we're we got some pretty pretty good gems in here. It strikes me that. Belief is coming at uh, a very interesting time in our history. There has been a rise of anti-Asian racism and, and hate uh, over the last, I think specifically in the last year or so, we're looking at uh, with, with a, a rise and, and a, a despicable rise in that. Uh, and this is something, the release of something like uh, belief or uh, a new issue of rice paper, is it a way of, of helping people, giving people a window into, into a world that perhaps they don't have? I think it is. I mean, the whole anti-Asian hate thing, I mean, unfortunately it's been happening for many years, but it was just sort of never really of news interest or newsworthy. It just happens. And I think a lot of people, when they come to Canada, they're just trying to survive. So if they do face any discrimination or racism, they'd rather not say anything because they have to keep their job and, you know, keep going for their family. So there's a lot of sacrifice. Um, but it is interesting this book is coming out at this time. I think it does uh, give a window as to what it's like. For example, some of the stories are about uh, Gary Egghead's um stories about someone growing up in Thunder Bay and his family's restaurant introduced egg rolls to Canada and people were so upset about it and you're talking about back in the 50s and 60s and they're just like what the hell is this and then the food critics are like oh this is non-authentic stuff so it was quite interesting to listen to that and if you know as he was living it I mean I'm sure it was a very horrible situation at the time I mean looking back now it seems funny but, you know, it's like a little glimpse of windows uh, to go into it. I think at the same time, we can't focus on just uh, the conflicts because over time, you know, if we want to get better, we sort of have to resolve the situation. I mean, we're living in a country with all sorts of people, not only, you know, one type of people, right? And we just have to learn how to get along. But we hope that this book will sort of share a little bit on the perspective on the Asian perspective, things we've experienced and hopefully connect with people, right? And then they'll sort of understand, oh, okay, maybe that's why they think that way or whatnot and just emphasize with each other overall because we all want to transform society for better. That was my interview with Alan Cho and J.F. Garrard. They are the editors of Belief. It's in stores right now. A big thanks goes out to them. Also a big hats off to Cynthia Loist. Find her book, Find Your Pleasure, wherever you find fine books. Also, a big thanks to Patrick Radden Keefe for stopping by to talk about his fascinating book, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, also available wherever you buy fine books. 
But most of all, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay safe, stay happy, and we'll talk again soon.